Hello, and welcome to the My Messy Church podcast. Each week, we'll be going through your questions from the weekend services and doing our best to present answers from a biblical perspective. If you haven't yet listened to the weekend sermon, I want to encourage you to head over to curtislake.org backslash media for context of what we will be discussing today. We love getting your questions and cannot wait to grow together. So without further ado, let's dive into My Messy Church. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Messy Church podcast. Um, We've got some really good questions. Uh, I took a quick breeze through these. Um, uh, Good diversity of questions this week. Uh, We were were in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, where Paul's talking to... uh, people in a number of like relational situations, married people, unmarried people. Uh, so if you want to reference back to that, uh, we kind of, uh, we took up the whole chapter, but didn't really get to dive too deep into the details. Uh, although I noticed a, a few of these questions maybe will help us round out some of uh, what that conversation was like this past Sunday. So, all right, let's get into it. Uh, first question is, how do we support singles in the church? Often churches cater to families. Is there something we can do to be mindful of that? Uh, so uh, yeah, certainly one of the things that uh, comes up in 1 Corinthians 7 that we talked about this week is the reality that singleness is as viable uh, a calling as marriage. Uh, and where, you know, before, before Jesus... Um, establishes this like this this spiritual kingdom here on earth uh you know for all of human history uh much of life was kind of centered around the idea of um uh, of a growing family right um there was benefits to both men and women for getting married and for having children bringing children into the world um but with with the 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 beginning of Jesus's kingdom, uh, it seems that like in the the New Testament ethic is largely kind of centered on this this new paradigm where while marriage is not done away with and it's not something that's just supposed to kind of shrink into the background, there is this reality that it is not necessarily a requirement for every single person to participate in, and so uh, things like um, commitments to singleness and celibacy, again, as a, as a, as a worthwhile and worthy calling, um, that's full of dignity and, um, and that, that allows a person to experience exactly the same status within Jesus's kingdom as a married person. Uh, you know, that's, that's just sort of this new reality that we live in. Um, the truth is though, like we kind of talked about how we've continued over the, you know, many, many years and generations to, to really keep kind of as what we think is the the standard or normal uh, thing for a person to do is is to get married, um, and I wouldn't suggest that like most people are gonna not get married. Uh, I think that there's you know, there's probably always going to be, um, as far as the majority is concerned, more people that are moving into uh, deep romantic relationships that ultimately have at their end something like marriage. And, uh, and so that's always going to be kind of the majority, but when we just live with this assumption that, well, everybody's supposed to get married, then it, it really can be detrimental to the experience that singles have within a faith community and even in the world, right? A lot of times, and we kind of talked about this, 
they they could just be kind of looked at as being strange or abnormal, um, even though singleness may be not the um, not the trajectory of life for most people. Uh, and so singleness may be what we might describe as atypical, <laughs> meaning it's just it's not the typical thing, but abnormal would be a more pejorative, more negative way uh, of looking at that. So how do we support singles? Uh, you know, so I, I would, I think, confess quite openly that this is something we've not done well. Um, I, I don't know that I've really ever been a part of a church community that that has, like, in particular done uh, singleness very well. I, maybe there's something like, a you know, a singles ministry or a singles group. And a lot of times, even when those kinds of things are organized, it's almost uh, like this space where there's this expectation that, oh, we get a bunch of singles together. Now they'll be able to find one another and stop being singles. And that would sort of go against, I think, the point, um, not that that's a bad, you know, it, for people that want to pursue a relationship and just happen to be single, but that don't really want to be single, there's nothing, while Paul provides some advice for why a person could find just um, complete fulfillment and uh, and purpose in their life as a single person, and so they just didn't you know, I think his encouragement is just like, don't discount that. Um, for even the person that whose heart is wanting to be in a relationship, uh, with another person and, and, and to get married and like the fact that that isn't happening or doesn't seem immediately likely in the foreseeable future is, is, is heartbreaking and emotionally difficult for that person. Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to discount the reality of those feelings, or say that you know you should just suck it up and you know this is this is what God has for you. Like I, I, I don't know I, um, if 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 a person uh, was uh, let's let's just say kind of past the typical marrying years uh, where people very typically get married. And so starting to feel that angst of like, am I going to be alone forever? Uh, you know, and they come in for some counsel and advice. Uh, like I, I, I would never want to diminish the, the desire, the experience for, um, for, for a relationship. If that's what, if that's what the person wants, but I would hope that like that person could also just understand, like we talked about these last couple of weeks that the, the fact that you have this really deep desire and a good desire, like it's not a, it's not a bad, it's not an evil desire. It's a good desire. And the fact that that, that, that desire lives in there and it's going unmet, like let that just bring you closer to Jesus. Um, and I don't say, all right, well, you know, like that's just what you got to do. And, and then, and then that's it. I mean, like follow, follow in the footsteps that like God has kind of ordered for you, right? Like one step at a time, one day at a time, and just continue following him and serving him and, and like, see how he satisfies your heart. Uh, you know, first of all, with, with the completeness of who he is. And then besides that, all the ancillary stuff, which may include a marriage partner at some point. Um, we just don't know. Uh, so I think that while we could, I mean, tomorrow, I suppose, and I, I, I think we have, I think we have groups, you know, from time to time that, will specifically be designated for people who are single that are looking for that. And they're looking for that because they just, they just want to be in a group with some other people that are going through the same kind of, um, phase of life as they are. And that's fine. 
but I don't think that's, I think, I don't think that could be the limits of what we do. Uh, I, what I really think ought to happen is like single people need to be fully incorporated into the, the whole community of the church. And like what ought to be happening is, you know, singles should be, uh, being grafted into like larger family contexts. Um, where a husband and wife and uh, with kids or without kids or whatever also has in their lives, not, not just other people that are, that are married and whose kids are exactly the same age, but that also have single people who are um, in the relationship is like, it'd be very normal for this single man or woman to come over for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or any holiday or just from time to time. And like that person, if there's kids in the house becomes, you know, the, uh, you know, the aunt or uncle, um, not by blood relation, but just by, um, this more, uh, spiritual, uh, kind of familial bond that occurs. Like what, that's the sort of thing that needs to be happening uh, where, uh, a couple, a couple goes on a date and a single person or two goes with them. And so there's a third or fourth wheel, if you will. And it's not weird. It's, it's just, it's like it's really normal, uh, and and like the friendship that sort of exists among those multiple people uh, is it's it's a like it's a it's a real relationship, even though they may have different kinds of um, you know ways of living. You know, the married people have like these these very significant attachments, uh, first of all to one another, and then again potentially to kids, and you know just maybe some other things. Uh, the single person may be more free and. And so there's a, I think if we could, if we could paint the picture, there's a lot of give and take that could happen there and just be very, very beautiful, um, with this, this appreciation for the status of each person where they happen to be. And so I think that like, that's the, that's sort of the direction that we want to head in as a church, the, the kind of thing that we want to be where, uh, where it's almost like singleness is not a thing and marriage is not a thing. Um, and they are both things at the same time. Uh, and they, and they very much have so much to do with one another. You know, a lot of times when we are, uh, we're talking about some kind of event that we're going to do, or we're putting something on the calendar and the word family gets thrown in there, like family game night or family movie night. I, uh, if you ask the staff, you'll, they'll tell you, I, like I balk it, like the putting family in there. Uh, and I love the idea of family in the sense that it's like the spiritual family, the, the broader spiritual family is, is all invited into this, but that's generally not what people hear. And so it's generally not how I want to market something. Uh, we do still for lack of a better way of saying it, oftentimes we'll revert back to that language and say, all right, we have a family game night. And then we have to go out of our way to try to help people understand. It's like, okay, this doesn't mean this is for like a mom and dad and kids exclusively. It's, it is for them, but it's for anybody. It's for a person that, um, that does not live with or is not in a relationship with another person. This is like, literally it's for our church family. Uh, and what we actually want is we want people from all those different kinds of, um, uh, you know, places in life, whether it's the, the retired couple who have not just children, but grandchildren or great grandchildren, um, intermixing with, with families that have preschool aged kids who are mixing with single people who have, um, uh, kids maybe from a previous relationship who are mixing with single people who've never had kids, right? Like the, everybody together, 
um, just kind of on this equal playing field that are participating in something uh, I think is a really beautiful picture. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think we want to, first of all, we just need to raise our level of sensitivity toward the reality that singleness is, um, is as beautiful a, a calling. It doesn't mean that it's not without its pain, right? Uh, I, I I heard some feedback this week about, you know, there's there's single people that listen to the message and, and they're sitting there thinking, yeah, but I don't want to be single. Like I, I want to get married or I, I want to be in a relationship with another person. I do feel lonely. And again, I, I get that. Uh, and I, I, that's, that situation as it is doesn't necessarily mean it, it's the way it will always be. But um, while it is, what we as followers of Jesus need to do is learn, like, what does it mean to be content? And to that single person, I would say, listen, there's lots of married people who are feeling just as much discontentment as you are, right? Uh, there's no doubt that, like, sitting in the congregation, there's lots and lots of married people who are... Um, that are that are no less lonely than that single person because their marriage is unhealthy and they don't have the kind of intimacy that that um, both that single person and those married people are all looking for, right? And so uh, loneliness loneliness is not cured by the fact that there's another human being uh, right there beside you that you're in a sexual relationship with. <laughs> if we could just you know kind of bring it to that, um, you know, loneliness is the result of uh, a, a person's, uh, incapacity to, uh, to have, or to experience like deep relationships with other people, whether those relationships are sexual or not. And so it's, you know, we have to, we have to just kind of back up, you know, from the, the simple pursuit of what is romantic and erotic and all that and, and understand, okay, well, first of all, as a, as a person who's following Jesus and who hopefully has an idea that, um, what ultimately should be true of my life is that Jesus is enough and I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone else. Um, you know, like as I'm moving more and more toward that, then the, the relationships that I have with, with other people become that much more rich. Cause I'm not depending on this person, this man, this woman, or this group of people to fulfill me or to make me happy. Like I'm finding my delight and my joy in God first. Um, I'm finding my delight and joy in the the purpose for my life that I am experiencing even outside of like how that works and interacts with with other kinds of relationships. And then when when that's good and healthy and moving in the right direction, then these other relationships, whether it's a spousal relationship or, um, you know, best friends kinds of relationships or other like more like deeply connected relationships than mere acquaintances. Uh, then those things can become even more beautiful because they're not, they're not being, there's no baggage being attached to them where I need this person to do this for me so that I can feel fulfilled and feel happy. Yeah, when you have that, then like that relationship is just, it's really largely headed for trouble. So, um, all right. I, I, hopefully that helps. Uh, the next, uh, next question is the Bible says your soul is tied with people you're intimate with. What happens to the soul when someone has had many partners and how do you break these ties? Uh, I'm not really sure how to answer this. I mean, I would, I think I would echo the sentiment that is being described here. And that is that, uh, and we talked about this, like if we have a high view of the body, the physical body as a part of the I that I am, uh, which I think is, it's, it's not just what I believe. I think, I think it's pretty clear. It's what, what the Bible teaches, what is a good um, understanding of 
the, um, the the theology of how God has created us as as human beings, right? Our body and our soul are um, they they together make up this thing called a person, and 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 we are not we are not just merely our souls and our minds with our bodies as kind of this this deranged attachment that we're trying to shed and get rid of. Um, the scripture provides for a very high view of the body so much so that even when we die and this body decays in the ground, the, like, the, you know, the ultimate hope and anticipation for my soul is to be, to be reunited with a, with a physical type of body. Um, and, and like, un, and then until that reunion occurs that, you know, I'm not, I'm not like fully myself again. Uh, and so, so the so the body matters. Our our sexual relationships and experiences they also matter. Uh, like I had taught this Sunday, the Corinthian church I think was was um, was kind of holding that like the that there were cer- certain sexual encounters that didn't really need to matter. Um, the Paul the example Paul was using uh, when he talked about the uh, the sexual immorality that was sort of. Uh, right there at the surface of the Corinthian church is like they were soliciting p- prostitutes, um, which for most of us feels like that's a, like, that's a, that's a really kind of far step out there um, to have, to experience, you know, a, a, to have a sexual encounter, right. To go and hire somebody um, like that probably for a lot of us just feels like, like, how do you even do, how would you, how would you even go about doing that? Um, but anyway, they, they would treat that as, as just, it's no big deal. Like that doesn't, that's something my body does. It doesn't affect the real me. And I would disagree with that. I think that, um, I think that our sexual encounters are a, a, a means by which we have made ourselves vulnerable to another person, whether or not we've agreed to like, let ourselves become emotionally vulnerable in the moment. Like we might think that we're we're compartmentalizing and separating our emotions and things like our soul from that experience. But I just, I just don't think it's really possible. Um, and today, I mean, it's just very common for a lot of people to have, um, to have gone through their lives, having had many sexual partners. Like that's just, that's just the reality. We live in this very sexualized culture, uh, where we are at very early ages introduced to the idea of sex. We are taught kind of from the beginning, if, um, if you're if you're out there in the world, um, being exposed to things from like what's taught in in uh, in schools to what is presented through media, uh, we're, we're taught that that sex is 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 really just this very very normal biological thing, which it is, um, but that ultimately is uh, is able to be experienced at. Um, you know, at, at pretty much whatever it is that your heart desires. Uh, and so, uh, people are having sexual encounters at earlier and earlier ages. Um, they're having more and more unattached encounters, uh, you know, like that no strings attached kind of relationship. Um, you know, movies just, and shows, they practically assume that, that those kinds of things are, um, that are, are just sort of the norm. I mean, maybe there's the, Maybe there still exists the rule that you don't have sex on the first date, but that doesn't mean you can't have sex on the second date. And so, uh, as you're in these dating relationships, it's, it's, yeah, sex is treated as something that's, you know, maybe, um, a, a significant piece of, um, 
um, display of affection, but, but nothing like what I think God had in mind when he created this thing called sex. Um, and so, yeah, how do you, how do you break these ties? Well, I think, I, I don't know that you really break them. Um, I think they, I think they, they ultimately have an impact. I, but I do also think that like as followers of Jesus who are surrendering our lives to God and who experience deep forgiveness and grace from God, um, whether it's experiences like our, our, um, our, our sexual encounters over the course of our lives or really anything, uh, God can do an incredible work of redemption in that. And so, uh, it doesn't, a person's sexual encounters don't necessarily have to define who they are. I think this is pretty beautifully illustrated in like some of the narratives of the gospels. Um, it's generally understood Mary Magdalene was this, was a prostitute. She's a person that was hired for, um, the use of her body and she embraces Jesus as she encounters him and becomes a follower and presumably probably walks away from that having had who knows how many sexual encounters over the course of her life. Um, and yet I think, and again, we don't, we don't have the full, uh, we don't have the full story, but, um, I imagine that she was able to, you know, ultimately, uh, put to death that old life, right. And, and bury it. Um, and as, as it's represented in the waters of baptism, you know, to be baptized and to be, um, uh, to put to death that old, that old life and those old ways and to be raised again to new life and a whole new, a whole new future, a whole new reality. Again, it, it doesn't mean that, that there aren't necessarily, you know, some repercussions or ripple effects of, what has gone on before. I mean, that's true of all of our experiences, uh, but they don't necessarily have to define us. They don't have to, they don't have to be the thing that's like hanging over our head. Um, if, if we've experienced God's forgiveness because God's forgiveness is, is, has wiped those things out and he's made us a new creation. Uh, next question is how do you feel about those who have issue with Paul's advice regarding marriage because he was never married? Uh, so again, it's commonly thought that Paul was himself not married um, and never married. Uh, certainly in Paul's writings to us, uh, he refers back to the fact that he is single and probably always was single. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the I guess the the questioner is sort of pointing out, it's like, okay, well, Paul was single; he's ne never married. Does he really even have any weight in speaking to? these kinds of topics. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that I think, I think Paul's perfectly legitimate. Um, he does like very uniquely, uh, have some apostolic authority, uh, and as a person who is ultimately being inspired to write scripture that is conveyed to us, um, for our teaching and instruction, like there's, there's something there. Uh, oftentimes, you know, our understanding of the Bible is God's word is a lot of times writers will write things uh, for which they have no real firsthand experience. Um, you know, Matthew is a writer of a gospel. Uh, he walked with Jesus. He experienced the life and the teaching of Jesus in person. Uh, and so that experience was coupled together with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he, and he writes this beautiful gospel for us. Uh, but then somebody like Mark, who also wrote a gospel, and Luke, who also wrote a gospel, they didn't walk with Jesus, um, like in the flesh. And so 
they they come about the inspiration of God's spirit and the putting together of uh, these gospel writings in a kind of different way and are speaking back to events that they didn't necessarily particularly eyewitness. Uh, obviously, the same is true with much of the first parts of the Bible. Um, Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy are... are um, our, our writings that kind of go back to the beginning of time. And it's not like it was being written uh, along the way. Ultimately, somebody was inspired to write these things, most commonly thought to be Moses uh, as the writer of Genesis, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years following the events, many of the events that he records. Uh, so anyway, so Paul has, I think, I think he has uh, authority to speak to this, first of all. So I think that's important. Um, but also like, just because somebody doesn't necessarily have the experience of something doesn't mean they can't necessarily speak to it. Um, now it, it's, it's often helpful to have a person who's had experience, uh, to, 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 to talk about things, but it's not necessarily required. Uh, I think Paul in the way that he grew up, um, as a, as a Jewish person, and and now as a follower of Jesus, I think he had plenty of uh, intimate knowledge with what marriage was all about, what marriage was for, how like the design and purpose of things like marriage and sex and all that really worked, uh, even though he may not have been a particular like in particular a participant in those experiences. Um, so, yeah, I you know, I think that's I think that's that the fact that he like elevates singleness again is just. For me, in our day, I think it's I think it's just a good counterbalance to how we have how we have put kind of made this this idol out of marriage and and sort of created that as the expectation and that everything that is not marriage, um, everything that is not you know a human being moving into a sexual relationship with somebody else is is seen as very very strange and uh, almost like subhuman, uh, but that that strangely just forgets. The reality that Jesus never married, uh, Jesus never was in a sexual relationship with another person, and yet our theology of Jesus is that he experienced the fullness of humanity, like that there's nothing beyond the scope of um, what he was able to experience as a human in the flesh. Uh, and and so it, for that to be true, it just, again, I think testifies to the fact that a person doesn't have to be married to have like you know as long as you can check that box or as long as you can check the box that you've 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 had a sexual relationship or a sexual encounter with somebody okay well now now you've done that so um um that just that goes to full that complete the circle of what it means to be a human um i think scripture is just sort of pointing out here that those things aren't necessary that they're they don't they don't complete the the circle of the human experience um they're they're they can be uh, part of the human experience, but they don't necessarily define it. Uh, next question. During Paul's time, were women still considered lower than men? If so, how does Paul's direction involving women apply to society now? Has society twisted it? Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, were women still considered lower than men? Yes, like in the, in the larger scope of uh, the world. Uh, I think women were still considered to be inferior beings in the human race. Like if you were to quantify the worth and dignity um, uh, between the sexes, like a, a male person would have been seen as, as having a social status greater than a female 
person, like if they were in the same social status, of course they had these other um, social strata uh, in which people, right, they were slave and free. Uh, in, 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 in Paul's context, there was Roman citizens and non-citizens. And so non-citizens were uh, of a social class that was lower than, than citizens. And then, you know, obviously you had things like um, nobility and, you know, all these, all of these other ways that, uh, that, that sort of ranked people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, apples to apples, uh, a male was considered to be a, a superior, uh, the superior gender over the female. Um, Paul was, Paul, he often gets a lot of flack and, um, uh, criticism for his supposed view of women, his supposed devaluation of women. And I think that when that's happening, there's a very, very poor reading and understanding of both what Paul is writing and also the context in which he is writing. It's just, it's, it's pretty sloppy scholarship. I think, uh, the new Testament ethic of like men and women, male and female is, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely groundbreaking. It, it's, 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 it, it completely upset the standards and the norms for society in the kind of uh, equality that comes through that ethic. And, and again, like sometimes you have to, you have to not just read sort of something at the surface. Uh, this past week, we, that the, the, those first few verses of first Corinthians seven, I, I pointed out, it's just like, it's loaded with equality there. Now it doesn't mean that human beings haven't taken it and twisted it um, to make it sound like, like, like men are superior or used, used it to elevate the, the, the desires and the whims of men over women. Uh, and I gave some examples of that, but the, the actual language, uh, like Paul, he very intentionally kind of goes back and forth describing the rights and the obligations that husbands and wives have to one another. And he doesn't, he doesn't like front load, um, all these rights for the male side of the relationship and then all these responsibilities on the female side of the relationship. He actually goes back and forth and 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 says, like, women have rights in these in, in the area of uh, the marriage relationship. And again, like that just that you wouldn't have found that anywhere else. Uh, it's just it, it wouldn't have existed. And so um, and so the. Um, yeah, I, I think Paul has a very, very high value and view of women. I think that uh, scripture from the beginning, like the the creation account gives to us an account of God creating men and women in full and complete dignity within their respective sexes. Um, that that um, that Adam was created first and woman and Eve was created afterward um, is like it's completely or it's irrelevant in terms of like who's more important um the yeah they're 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 both given the full worth and dignity of being created in the image of god it's not like well adam was created more in the image of god and then eve was sort of like this this lesser than and subordinate thing uh you know unfortunately a lot of people that have been around for a really long time at church have have read the like grew up reading the King James version, uh, of the Bible, which, which, uh, the verse, the verse there that talks about Eve being created says that like God created this help meet for Adam and, and somehow in language, like people, they, they've made a noun out of 
these two words, help me. <laughs> um, you know, this, and the wife is the help meet to the man. And, and the, the way that that's thought of is that you have the man who's kind of like the thing, right. And, and then this woman who is this, and it's just sort of read into it, this somewhat inferior and subordinate helper to that person. And like, that's just, that's a bad understanding of the English language of the 1600s when the King James version was written. Um, uh, the, like what, what, what the translation is saying there is that God created a help. The word meat is not to be annexed to that. The word meat is, it's an adjective. Um, we could replace it with the word like suitable, uh, or something like, like the idea is that God created a helper for Adam who was a suitable partner to Adam. In fact, that word help, um, where it's used to describe Eve there, where you find it more commonly used throughout the old Testament is it describes God. Like it's the word that is used as, um, a description of God in reference to Israel, that God is the helper of Israel. That doesn't mean that God is this inferior and subordinate being to the nation of Israel. No, I mean, it's quite the opposite. And so when you, again, when you, when you really start to just do a little tiny bit of work, um, in, in the understanding of what the Bible is teaching about men and women and all that, um, you're going to find that, yeah, the Bible, the Bible is going to have pages and pages and pages and just like hundreds of years of, uh, narrative that's going to describe a society where women are inferior to men. Uh, and like the Bible isn't because it's recording that it's not saying, well, this is how it is. Uh, this is how it should be. Like this is the ideal or this is what God has created. It's simply just kind of laying out the reality of this world in which we live a world, which by the way is under the curse, but with, with Jesus coming and, 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 beginning this new era in which the curse is reversed through redemption and forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, a lot of that stuff is turned upside down. And again, we're, we're brought back to, um, the beauty of how God created, um, the world and how God created human beings. Uh, next question. If a man leaves his wife for another woman, another woman, if the wife files for divorce, does that align with how Paul is addressing when divorce is acceptable? All right. So it sounds like the person is presenting a, a case in point. Um, so a man, a man abandons his wife, um, I think is what the person is asking that like, and, and doesn't, doesn't himself initiate a divorce. He's just happy to go and begin a relationship with another person, uh, which unfortunately does happen. And it happens in the other direction too. So, uh, let's just say, you know, the woman could do the same thing. She leaves her husband, uh, and begins a relationship with another man. And so the other person just sort of left, like in the, the person who's doing the abandoning, isn't like dying to get into another married relationship and go. So they're, they're also not feeling like they have to close up the initial relationship. And so now you have this person who is in the position of having been abandoned, um, and, 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 and is not satisfied with the, like the, the legal status of still being married to this person and all the, like the accountability that goes with that. I mean, it could be things like, um, like how do we deal with our, with our possessions and our bills and our, our debts and, um, our tax filings and all that. Right. Obviously it's a, it's a very intricate kind of, 
um, bringing together of two people in a legal sense. And so this person who's been abandoned needs to, wants to, wants to, they're not satisfied with just that, um, being in limbo from a legal standpoint. So they file for divorce. Uh, they, they want to, it's like, okay, this person has chosen to leave. Um, we're going to affirm that abandonment legally. Uh, and, 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 and then I'm, I'm sort of free and liberated in a legal sense from that relationship. So the question is, does that align with how Paul is addressing when divorce is acceptable? Um, you know, is it like, is the, is the wife in this case or the abandoned person in this case, do they have a legitimate claim for divorce? And so to that, I would say, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly one of the kinds of things, you know, when Paul says, listen, if your spouse is willing to stay with you, right. And, and specifically speaking to a relationship where, you know, one person is a Christian and another is not right. So let's just, let's say that the person who has abandoned the other is not a Christian. And so now you have this Christian person who's been abandoned. Do they have a justifiable claim for filing for divorce? Um, and I'd say, yes, divorces, while I said this Sunday, like it's not something we should rush into and just, you know, immediately because we've fallen out of love with a person or, or uh, I don't know, whatever the thousand other reasons are people get divorced um, flippantly. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't just, we shouldn't just rush into that. Uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't treat marriage as so contemptible, so worthless, so unimportant that we're willing to just dissolve it, you know, as soon as something starts to go wrong. Uh, but this is, this sounds like a case where we're far beyond that. So, um, and so the person can file for divorce and get divorced. And now that legal separation has been made. What, what, what becomes kind of tricky and interesting and, um, you know, where I, I think a person has to do a really, really deep and thorough searching of their heart, uh, both personally with God, uh, and hopefully also within, you know, spiritual community, uh, with it, with, with really a, a deep desire to, uh, like we talked about this week, follow God's commands, like Following God's commands is what's important. What does it mean for me who finds myself in this position? What does it mean for me to follow God's commands? So Paul's pretty clear uh, where he says that that person who's been abandoned, uh, they, they're free. Uh, what's unclear is, okay, well, what exactly does that mean that they're free? Uh, does that mean they're free and no longer have the obligation to, to dwell on like the emotional toil of that, that relationship and that like they can, they can move on, uh, as now a, a, a free single person to pursue the, the rest of the life that God has for them. Or does it mean that they're free to go and remarry? Like now they've not, they've satisfied the legal requirement of getting divorced, but spiritually speaking, and as far as like in the eyes of God, are they free to get remarried? And I think that that's a, uh, generally people are going to think, well, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds about right. I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair otherwise, right? Like, how is that fair that a person is abandoned by their spouse, no fault of their own, that now they have to be relegated to being a single person for the rest of their lives. And to that, I would just say, oh, you were asking, we're, we're saying this wrong, right? Like, Again, it's just presuming that 
singleness is a lesser tier of living. And and again, I, I, I get it. Like for the person that got married, chances are their hopes and dreams all involved living the rest of their lives with the person that they're madly in love with, right? With their soulmate. And that didn't work out. And so they're probably inclined to still want to pursue that dream. It's just going to be with another person. And I, I just, like, I, I think to just rush to the conclusion that that's okay and to be ju- and justified, I think is really, really problematic. I think that that's, that's where my encouragement came with, just need to wait. You know, like that, like this is something we need to wait and maybe wait a really, really, really long time for. Um, generally, I mean, it's just in my experience, it seems like when, when two people separate and get divorced that, I mean, it's not like, it's not like they had a, this, like their first big fight a couple days before and it's like, okay, well this obviously isn't going to work out. And so they end up in a court of law and they get divorced. Like by the time two people get divorced, They've been emotionally speaking very, very far apart from one another, probably for a really long time, maybe for years and years. Maybe they've been done with that relationship at, you know, at a at an intimate level for a long time. And so like by the time they get the divorce, a lot of them, I mean, just find this, they're like they're already in relationships with other people. Like maybe they've separated. And then as soon as they separated, they pretty quickly kind of get into the dating scene because they've, they've been wanting that for years, right? Like if their relation, if their marriage relationship has been bad for years and they're they, like, they want to have intimacy with another person. I mean, there's just, there's a, I think we see it all the time. They're, they're, uh, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no more time that they need, right? Because they've already, they've already, they've already sort of passed the mourning stage for their marriage relationship, and and so yeah, you'll see two people that are maybe still legally married but separated, like already getting into these significant relationships that may ultimately become long-term relationships, and um, and so by the time divorce happens, it's it's and then who knows, like within months or a year or whatever, um, the person thinks is socially acceptable or acceptable for their particular situation there. There they are getting married to that, you know, second person or whatever. Um, but so anyway, like that's our, that's our standard operating procedure, um, in our, in our modern era, uh, of how we're treating marriage, how we, how we view marriage, how we view the marriage relationship. And I guess what I'm trying to do here is maybe just present an alternative vision that would suggest, well, that's, that may be the way it is, but that's, it's all wrong. Um, and it's really interesting. Like, like I can't, I can't say that for the person who is single and has never been married, uh, I can't say to that person, listen, whatever those desires you have going on in your heart and life for another person, like that's, that's great. And like, you know, you don't have to, ignore suppress those desires but also don't be defined by those like those unmet desires bring those unmet desires into the arms of jesus and find your fulfillment and your satisfaction and your whole person um uh kind of like fulfillment in this life find find that work toward finding that 
holy in Jesus and and see and see what comes out of that. Uh, let those unmet desires drive you more closely to Jesus. Um, and also like, don't, don't let those desires move you into a place where you're disobeying God's commands. Right. So don't like, don't, don't concede. If, if, if we happen to be talking about a person who's like, just like desperately hungry for an intimate relationship with another person, um, what we've seen sometimes is, well, they haven't found they haven't found exactly the kind of person that they want to be with. Like, let's say that's also at a similar spiritual level and place that they are. And so they, they make a concession and they get in a relationship with a person that's not following Jesus, for instance. And that other person, they don't have the same moral qualms about, um, about sexuality, promiscuity, uh, you know, being in a sexual relationship prior to marriage. And so there's that pressure now to kind of pander to that other person's wants and desires. And, you know, you hear you have this person who's just like, they just, they want to be loved and they want to, they want to express their love. And, and like, this is what that other person wants and needs in order to, um, to legitimize that there's real love there. And so this concession is made. And now, now this person that's a follower of Jesus has entered into this area of disobeying God's commands. Right. And that the whole point of this message was like, don't let your desires propel you into a place where you're disobeying disobeying God's commands. So I can't say to that single person, like, no, 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 you need to, you need to wait. Right. And you need to like, just continue following Jesus and take those desires to the Lord and, and let your will be more powerful than your desires. Like exercise your will to do what is right and to follow God with all of your heart, even though it's hard, even though it's painful. So I can't say that to the single person, but then to the person who's, who's, marriage was a wreck and it all went bad. And, 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 you know, now they've kind of like gotten away from that and are ready to venture into maybe a new long-term relationship or marriage relationship. Like I can't, I can't not give the exact same advice to that person. Um, you know, especially where what Paul seems to suggest is that person needs to wait for the potential of being reconciled to their spouse. Now, when you have things like, okay, in this particular case, the man left his wife for another woman, so now they're committing adultery. And, and so when you take kind of like the, the whole of scripture and, and, and start maybe making concessions for certain things like, well, if a, if a person is unfaithful in their marriage, then the other person is free, presumably or possibly, to, to, to seek another relationship, right? And so that, that, that again, that requires a lot of... Um, interpersonal spiritual work, uh, between a person and God, uh, maybe, maybe even some pastoral counsel and some communal counsel within the, the larger community. I just, I guess my point would be, let's like, let's not just rush to assume that like I have the right to be happy in a long-term marriage relationship with somebody else. Like that's my right. And however, however I need to get to the place where I am benefiting, um, from that right experience, get like, I get that. I get what I want because that's, what's going to make me happy. Let's not, let's just not assume that that's the way it ought to be. Um, there is, I think there's a different vision for how this all works. And again, it's, it's just so counter to where we are, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean it isn't something that we should be more and more, um, 
starting to, to, to see and embrace uh, and, and, and realize, wow, we've, we've really gotten off the track here when it comes to marriage and sex. And, and so God help us. How do we, how do we actually get back to, uh, to your ideal for our lives? It happened like in, in Paul's day, while, while the Corinthian church certainly had its share of just incredible immoral behavior that needed to be dealt with, like the fact that it was being dealt with, I suggested that there was, um, there was an ideal set up for the faith community that said, this is, to follow Jesus is an embodied kind of experience. It's not something you do in your mind. You know, I can't, I can't say I'm a follower of Jesus because I've convinced myself mentally speaking that I am following him and that whatever I do in my body doesn't really matter just as long as like the person that I am is, is moving toward Jesus. It's like, no, my, my, my body plays a part in whether or not I am actually moving toward Jesus. And so it, it, it was sort of, um, it was just sort of understood within a faith community that was in a very, very pagan culture that had all kinds of like crazy things going on that this community, like this is, this is how people live. This is how people surrender themselves, their whole selves, including their bodies to the Lord. And to deviate away from that required some significant correction, which is what we're seeing happening, uh, in first Corinthians here. All right. Next question. If a married couple is chosen not to have children, is it still biblically permissible for them to continue to have recreational sex with one another? Uh, first of all, thank you for calling it recreational sex. That's, um, that's fun. Um, so yeah, I, I think that a proper understanding of the marriage relationship is that that is the one legitimate place for the expression of, uh, uh of sexuality to occur, right? God created um, marriage specifically to um, to like be the place, to be the context in which sexual expression occurs. And it's the one place. It's the only place where it's supposed to occur. Everything that's outside of that is considered to be immoral and goes against God's commands. Everything. Um, now, sex has multiple um, purposes behind it. Right. So one of those purposes is procreation. But it's not the only purpose. Um, you know, another purpose is to uh, to to symbolize and to bind uh, those two human beings uh, as now a, as a as a as a as a both a spiritual and physical one flesh kind of entity. Right, the the man and the woman in marriage they become one flesh, uh, and so the the sex act is a um, it, it's a it's a symbolic representation of that, and it's and it's to be freely expressed and to be freely given and enjoyed within that marriage relationship, whether or not there's any procreative potential. So if it's a younger couple that is infertile. Uh, and, and they, they understand that like medically speaking, they are infertile and they have no, you know, other, other than God, maybe doing a miracle, they have no real chance of producing a child, um, through, um, conventional sexual relationship. That doesn't mean that they should just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, we can't make children. So sex is off limits for us. They, that may be true if, 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 if sex were created by God and God like instituted the framework that, okay, this is for making babies and that's it. Like, this is not for your enjoyment. This is not for 
the, the nurturing of that intimate relationship. This is not for two people being able to experience the kind of like vulnerability that occurs within, you know, the, 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 the properly exercised expression of sexuality. It's only for making babies. Okay. Well, that would be a different story, but that's, that's just not the reality. Um, sex has multiple purposes behind it. And all of those purposes actually need to be taken into consideration, um, which I'm going to get to in just a couple of questions. All right. So, but anyway, yeah, I, um, simple answer. Yes. Still permissible. They're married. Um, so go for it. Next question. Can a sexual couple, can a sexual couple with intentions to wed consider themselves married without legal documentation? There weren't marriage licenses in Paul's day. Sex was consummation. All right. Um, Good question. Uh, so the second part of this, where this this statement is being married, uh, the statement is being made that they weren't mar- there weren't marriage licenses in Paul's day, and sex was consummation. So sex certainly was considered to be like the physical consummation of marriage, but I think it's a little disingenuous to suggest that that um, like until sex happened, uh, there wasn't something like legitimately binding those people together. Um, I think the person's trying to make the case that it's like, okay, well today what we have is we have this very weird blend of civic and religious implications when it comes to marriage. So uh, like a, a, a real proper marriage for, uh, for a United States citizen is, um, primarily, a civic thing. So uh, I, what I mean by that is you don't have to get married in a church. You don't have to have uh, a, a minister or a priest officiate the, the wedding. You can have a justice of the peace or I guess really a friend now um, that can officiate that marriage. What's important is that you've gone uh, to, your, uh, to your local government and you have registered and, um, and ultimately filed a marriage certificate that creates this legal binding relationship between two people, right? And so that's how we see marriage. And then if a person chooses to have a Christian marriage or other kind of religious marriage as a sort of um, uh, a more a more spiritual type of marriage, then um, like that's, that's just up to the individual couple. Um, so again, in Paul's day, the like marriage was still a contract. Uh, it still had, it, it was actually, then this is why I say it's a little disingenuous to just suggest that because there weren't marriage licenses that, that, that marriage, you know, I think the person's trying to say, listen, if I and another person decide to have sex then we have essentially married one another, whether or not somebody has officiated a ceremony or we've gotten a marriage license. (laughs) Um, in Paul's day, you know, you had, uh, generally speaking, marriages were arranged by parents, uh, not necessarily all the time, and 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 maybe even less so uh, as um, as you had Greco-Roman culture, um, maybe redefining how people got married, but. A lot of times, still there was there was an arrangement of marriage, and and those marriages were they were legal binding contracts between two people even prior to their consummating that marriage. Right? We talked about that betrothal period, and Paul specifically speaks to that category of people. 
and and uh, and so like papers been passed essentially, or you know, I mean, like money has been transferred from one family to another, right? This is this is where all that stuff about like dowries um, kind of comes in. Uh, and, and so there was a, a very, very legal sense in which those two people had become married, even though they may not consummate the marriage with, uh, with, a, with, with their sexual relationship until a long time after that. So marriage was a much bigger deal, uh, much more difficult to sever oneself from than what it is like for us today in the day of no-fault divorce. Uh, if I wanted to divorce my wife, I could just go to court and file for divorce. And I don't need a reason. <laughs> I think I can maybe supply a reason if I wanted to, but I don't. I my understanding of no fault divorce is just I I I I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. Uh, and I'm a free person, and I can't be forced to be in this marriage anymore. Even though I you know I made a vow and a commitment to this other person, I'm I'm done with it. And I can and that other person has no recourse. There's nothing they can do about it. Uh, that wasn't necessarily true 60, 70 years ago. It's like you have to have a reason for why you're filing divorce, a legitimate reason, and then a court would determine and ultimately adjudicate whether or not that divorce was legitimate and approve the divorce, right? So it was a, uh, it was a much more uh, difficult process to, to separate. Now it's, it's just super easy. We also, though, today have... Um, we have fewer people getting married and more people just entering into these adult relationships with one another so much so that they're, they're often buying property. I mean, they're actually like buying houses and putting, you know, themselves as two unmarried people on a mortgage and otherwise combining significant assets and, um, uh, and all that, uh, obviously living a, you know, living out and expressing a sexual relationship, uh, for all practical purposes in a relationship that's very, very much like a marriage. Um, so for the Christian, is that like, is that legit? I think is what the person is asking. Uh, and I would say it's not, <laughs> I just, it, my, my simple answer to that question is it's not. And I, that's why I, I did, um, sort of specifically kind of call out the, the situations that we know are more and more common where people are choosing not to marry. Like they, they, they enter into a sexual relationship with another person. They choose not to marry a lot of times for economic reasons. That seems to be the most common one. It's like, okay, a person is getting benefits from the government for one thing or another. And um, if, they, if they marry somebody else and they're no longer going to get those benefits or uh, if, there's a, if there's alimony being paid, I'm sure that probably plays into it. Like if a, um, a person's getting alimony from their previous spouse, but as soon as they get married to another person, they're going to lose that alimony. And so they choose not to do it. Or, um, there's just a really bad divorce and a person doesn't want to go through all of the legal proceedings, uh, just in case this next relationship falls apart. I just think it's just so wildly misses the mark. Um, like I, I, I mean, really, if, if, if you're just a little bit honest, I mean, I think you have to really, um, you gotta, you gotta dance around what is pretty plain and obvious to justify being in that sexual relationship with another person. Again, the, the first of all underlying presumption is that I need to be in a sexual relationship with another person in order to be fulfilled, in order to be happy. If I don't have that, then I'm not gonna be happy. Um, and I also have the challenge that while as much as I want that and need that, uh, for me to marry that person would be, 
really, really detrimental for one reason or another. And so I'm not willing to do that as well. Uh, I had a person one time that asked me, said, you know, I'm, uh, it was a guy said, you know, I'm in a relationship with this, this, this lady, which I knew about and said, you know, we were wondering if you'd be willing to like to marry us, not in the official legal sense, but like as, as a religious ceremony, like to, so I, would the church honor uh, our marriage relationship? And I said, no, I, I can't do that. And part of the reason why I can't do that is because I don't, I don't really actually have any authority in that. I, I mean, I might in the course of a wedding ceremony say something like by the power vested in me by the state of Maine and in the sight of God, I pronounce you husband and wife, but like <laughs> those are just words. Like they're, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'm empowered by the state to do that. And certainly I have some authority in the eyes of God to, to, um, to bring together that man and woman in marriage. But like, as soon as I sign the document, send it off to town hall, that, like, that's it. I don't only to the extent that that couple is willing to actually yield their marriage to the, um, to, uh, to the, uh, a kind of accountability to their, to their, their faith, faith community. It's like, well, the church just doesn't really have much to say about that. Now the Catholic church still, uh, all these many, many years, um, later, they, they still have a degree of authority in that. Like the Catholic church has a pretty rich, I guess we could call it, um, uh, theology of marriage where like when you get, you know, when you get married in the Catholic church, I mean, there's, there are certain things that you have to satisfy in order to even have that marriage perform, right? Like both of the people have to be Catholics that are confirmed and are in good standing with the Catholic church as, as believers. And without that, you can't, you can't get married. And, and then like, they would never perform a second marriage without the first, a first marriage already having been annulled. And so there's, there's some ways, and I, I don't really know all the ins and outs of it, but there are some ways in which the Catholic church has, um, they maintain some pressure, um, some social pressure on the, uh, the longevity of that marriage relationship that the evangelical church just really isn't equipped for. Um, the evangelical church is just so diverse and, and very transient, you know, this, when, whenever I talk about how easy it is for a person to, I'm just going to leave this church and go to another church. It's like, okay, well, you got married in this church. This, this, this church doesn't really have any, any real authority over your, over your, over your marriage. Like you get to do whatever you want. We live in a liberal society, um, where we are free to do as we please. And so, um, and, and then like, there's a danger, I think in me affirming a marriage that isn't brought under the, um, the accountability of the law. So I, I shared with this person, I said, I'll, I'll tell you part of the reason why I can't do that is because, um, like there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you and this other person now in moving forward with, um, with a, you know, you know, transitioning into a life of, of togetherness, uh, including, uh, things like, you know, money and property, right? So, um, let's just say that they, um, they start, they go and they start making significant asset purchases and they're done in, and they're done in the name of one person. Um, like my, my understanding is my wife and I have equal rights to all that we now own together. Like everything that we have is seen as something that we have ultimately gained 
together. Uh, and so we have equal rights to it. And so if our relationship were to dissolve, the state would award, you know, based on that sort of equal footing, regardless of who earned it or whose name it's in. Uh, if, you know, if, if I, if I worked for 20 years and my wife stayed at home, um, and, and didn't earn any money. And, and so, um, yeah, it's like the state would not, the state would still see us as equal part, equal contributors in that relationship. Whereas this other relationship, you know, that may not be so. And so now all of a sudden you have one person, um, that's able to kind of walk away from the relationship and there's no recourse for the other person to, uh, to get their share of what is left because there's no, there's no actual legal, um, standing that they have with the state. And so, so the fact that, um, in, in our society, I think, while, yeah, marriage is a, um, it's a thing that we do before God. And I really believe in this thing called Christian marriage. Uh, and, and, and again, want to kind of move more toward that. And so we're very selective in the kinds of marriages that we will actually officiate and perform at Curtis Lake. Uh, but we don't, we don't have a low view of the state's part in the affirmation of that marriage as well. All right. Is it okay to have sex on Sunday? Um, all right. So the, 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 this person asked me this question in the foyer kind of jokingly and, uh, and it was after first service. And so, um, they said they pointed out, they noticed nobody asked any questions in first service. And so, um, I was like, well, you can still ask it just kind of joking back. And then they did. Uh, uh, and I said, Oh, you know what? Actually, that's really good. I'm glad you did that because that'll help kind of trigger me to, um, to, you know, talk about a little bit about something that, uh, I, we really didn't get a chance to get into on Sunday. And these are not, these are not very well, uh, orchestrated thoughts that I have the reason. So they're asking this, um, in the conversation that we had in the foyer, they were bringing up how, I guess the Catholic church had some prohibitions on, what days you could or could not have sex with your spouse, right? So they actually had some regulations and I, I can't say whether or not that's true or still true. You know, I just, I don't know, but like, let's just assuming that it, that it was, um, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a silly, but also somewhat serious question. Like, is it okay to have sex on Sunday? Are there any prohibitions? Uh, let's ask it this way. Are there any prohibitions on when two married people can have sex? Now we read that verse where Paul says, Listen, don't don't deprive one another of what is the mutual right and responsibility of the two married people in the marriage relationship, except or unless you agree for a time for the purpose of prayer and then come back together again. Right. So Paul, he suggests that there is this possibility that two married people can uh, together make the decision that they're going to abstain from um, any sexual intimacy for a period of time for the purpose of prayer, which is really interesting. Uh, and I think that, that there, you know, it, it, it's something kind of similar to, you know, what we do when we're fasting, uh, or, or, or doing some other thing where we're, um, we're resisting some desire, uh, and we're, and we're exercising our will over that desire, uh, as a means of, deepening our attunement to the spiritual part of us. Right. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how if we don't, if, if, if we allow for our wills and our desires to just ultimately become the same thing. In other words, as soon as I want something, I get it. Then we start, we start being people that live according to impulse. And so, uh, from a sexual standpoint, if I'm just, if I'm living impulsively, 
sexually speaking, then, um, I, yeah, it's like, all right, I need to do something to gratify this, this urge that I'm experiencing. And it's like, it becomes impulsive behavior. And I think this is where a lot of people fall into very, very, um, uh, unhealthy and I would say sinful kind of habits when it comes to their sexuality, whether they're married or not, you know, whether it's, um, uh, whether it's, you know, masturbation, self-stimulation, the use of pornography, um, you know, things like that, where, where they're, they're, um, they're sort of satisfying this urge, um, to experience orgasm, but outside of the, the place where that belonged, which is within the, the married relationship. Like that's, 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 that's my understanding, um, of, uh, how that works. And, uh, and so, yeah, you just become this person of impulse and that's, 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 that's a very unhealthy place to be that, that ultimately, um, reduces the power of your will. And I think leads you to, uh, away from attunement to the spiritual, um, and soulful part of who we are. So, yeah, there could be something there, there could be something positive or beneficial for a couple to say, all right, we're going to we're, we're going to we're going to spend a week not having like um, not having sex. And we know that over the course of that week, there's going to be there's going to be times where we have the urge and the desire to be together. And it's not that it would be wicked and evil and wrong for us to do that. But we're going to we're going to actually exercise our will over that desire for the purpose of becoming more tuned with um the, the, the spiritual part of us. And we're going to, so we're going to use that for, for prayer. So yeah, I, I know that might sound weird that a couple would want to do that, but I, Paul just kind of opened the door for that. Um, the thing that I wanted to kind of get at, and again, I just, I don't have very well formulated thoughts about this, but um, I do think there's something a little amiss with the married couple just assuming or presuming that whenever they want to have sex, they ought to have it. Uh, so again, historically, this has often been, you know, thought to be like the man's got this like higher level of sexual libido, especially in earlier years. And, and so, um, it's the women's responsibility to make sure that, you know, their man is taken care of, which is just such a, I hate saying the words, it's just like such a bad view of, um, of sex. And, um, but anyway, like that's unfortunately, um, something that has been commonly thought and understood. And, uh, and so, yeah, like that just, that's not taking the desires of both people in the marriage relationship into consideration. Uh, and, and that's just, that's a really, really unhealthy thing. Um, the Bible has prohibitions on uh, a man laying with his wife when she's going through her menstrual period. And, and so like different thoughts around that have, have been, uh, considered like, you know, oh, well, it, you know, the reason why that, that prohibition was there is because, uh, of the, like the Jewish fanaticism of not mixing together, um, two, two kinds of things like blood and semen say in that particular instance. And so that's why that prohibition is there. It's like, okay, well that may be part of it, um, uh, another another idea would be well it's like well the the woman's not able to uh, like she's not fertile in during that period of time and so for the man to uh have sex with her it's a waste of semen and like that 
that wastefulness would have been considered to be uh, unproductive in society and taboo. And so, again, another reason why uh, they shouldn't do that. And then, like, there's, I think there's another thought we could just kind of bring into that. And it's just, it's like, you know, did God actually build into kind of the wiring of who we are, this reality that we don't have a right to sex anytime we want it? And so that like in the prohibition that he sets up in the, in the, um, the Levitical code, there's, there's this, there's this thought that, you know, there's just built into the timing, um, of the cycles of life, this, this period when you don't have sex with one another and, 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 and like, that's, that's, that's largely it. And it's just a reminder that, well, I don't have a right to have sex. I don't have a right to experience orgasm at just like literally any moment that I want to. Um, that's something that has to be brought into kind of the, 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 the calendar and the cycle of my life. And so, um, I, I, we, we moderns, we, we don't, we don't necessarily see this again. I think like some Catholic theology would probably speak a little more deeply um, and richly into this, uh, not necessarily correctly all the time, but just a, a little more deeply and richly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, one, one interesting benefit that may come from a couple that makes decisions to not be together intimately for a period of time. Uh, Paul brings out the, 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 the practicality of a period of prayer. I think another uh, another benefit of that would be just experiencing some solidarity with other brothers and sisters who aren't in a sexual relationship. Um, like, what does it mean for me as a married person who, like, if I want to, I can go home right now and, you know, as long as my wife is up to it, we can have sex <laughs> like, and, and not feel bad about it, not feel guilty about it. And, and so that's, that's, that's just so it's, it's right there and available to us at, at really any time we we want it. Uh, what does it mean to, to actually experience some solidarity where there are periods where I, I do want that. And I, I, I yearn for that relationship with my spouse. And yet I, I allow myself to experience that yearning without its fulfillment. Like I let that desire go unmet. And in that, I actually get to experience some solidarity with the single person who's also pining for that same relationship, but that doesn't have access to it. I think there's, again, I, I don't know what to do with all that, but I, I think that there's something there that, um, that might, again, just elevate our richness and our understanding of the marriage relationships, sexual relationships, and also um, the call to singleness. All right, last question. Um, if a married person has an affair, is there any hope for that relationship? Once it's found out, can there ever be forgiveness? I don't have a very an easy answer to this question. Um, I mean, is there any hope? Yeah, I, I think that there is hope. I think there's, I think there are people that really could speak to this from a personal, uh, experience, uh, who have done that. Now, again, I kind of hinted at the idea that there seems to be some provision, uh, within like the ethic of sexuality, uh, that when a, when a, when the marriage bond has been broken, uh, through an adulterous affair that, 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 that grants maybe some license or freedom for the spouse who's been offended to seek, um, getting out of that marriage. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a pathway, uh, for how to handle, um, 
a situation of an affair, obviously another pathway is, it is forgiveness. And I can't tell you how difficult it would be to navigate that or to get to a place like it's a little hard for me to imagine personally speaking like can there ever be forgiveness um i just say yeah there like forgiveness is a very very powerful thing and like some people have done it uh some time ago we watched this movie uh, as a church uh, over at smitty's that was the story of a woman that ultimately had to stand face to face in her home with a man that was responsible for murdering her family. Like this happened in the context of um, like uh, the time of Nazi Germany and, uh, and, and uh, you know, and ultimately the, the transition of that into um, to uh, uh, Russian um, empowerment and all that. And so, yeah, she, so she went through this experience of, of, of having her life in jeopardy, but ultimately had her family executed by this person. And, as a Christian at this later point in her life, she was called to stand in her own home face to face with this person who is guilty of that. And she exercised this just radical extension of forgiveness to that person and served that person in her own home. And it's like, I mean, it was just super powerful. It's like, how do you ever, how do you ever do something like that? So I suppose if a person can find it in them and find the strength from God to forgive something so bad as that, then yeah. I mean, could a, could a offended spouse forgive their other, their, their husband or wife of adultery? Can it be? Yeah. Um, are they obligated to continue on with the marriage relationship? I think that there's, I think there's plenty of justification for why a person can exit the relationship if they want to. Um, it, I, unclear as to whether or not they are then free to just go and remarry themselves, right? That's again, remarriage is always uh, the, the trickier part uh, of the whole equation. But um, yeah, so I guess I just kind of say there, there can be, there could be hope. Um, uh, probably better talking to a person that's actually walked through that and experienced that to, uh, to hear a story of how something like that uh, has happened. Uh, if the person who's asking this question is experiencing that, then I'm really, really sorry, um, that like that has been your experience. And I, uh, I don't know which side of that <laughs> you may find yourself on, but, um, I just pray that God would, would, would somehow help for the, 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 uh, the fallout, um, of that reality and the broken pieces that are ultimately, uh, created as a, as a result of that offense, like somehow that redemption is brought to, to both people involved and all the people involved, kids included. So, all right. Um, I think we'll close there and, um, yeah, that's all we got. So thank you so much for listening in. I know, uh, this one's a little long, but thanks for, thank you for your questions. Thank you for, um, hanging out with us. Um, we'll see you again next time. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of My Messy Church. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to head to your app store and download the Curtis Lake Church app for easy access to all of our content. Thank you so much for joining us, and we can't wait to be with you next week.